Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. And we are back, listeners. I know it's a shocker because I tell you we're going to show up every week. And here we are back again. Earlier this week, I was listening to the 90s station. And I have a question for you. If Backstreet oh, is right. back again, like we're back again, haha, see what I did there? Like, where did they go? You know what I mean? Like, I love Backstreet, back, all right. Like, where did they go? What were they they've doing? Always, they've always been in my heart. Yeah, I think you're missing. They the never, they never, they never left. They didn't go anywhere, right? They just like, hey, we're back. Like, but where were you? So anyway, where, where were we? Nowhere. We're just living our lives. <laughs> How's that for a cold open? <laughs> I mean, that was pretty amazing. Um, plus, you broke into song, not me. Because I felt like so you didn't like, get the reference. Like, I could feel that there was a generational gap happening, and you might not know the song that I was referencing. No, I was totally, like, 11 years old when that was a number one hit. Yeah, I felt like, I felt like we yeah. were... We could, I was it, in middle school. I was I was old enough to listen to peak, the radios. Peak boy band age right there. Right? Um, no, actually I, that was in seventh grade. I was in, when it, when that was the number one hit, I like remember that vividly because they played it at the school dances. It was a thing. I got it. I understand some cultural references sometimes. <laughs> so especially, cute. especially old, like 30 year old cultural references. Those are my favorite kind. So here's the thing. I am, we are currently doing the body love speaker series that I mentioned last week is totally happening. Um, and I'm going to tie it in. I know it sounds random, but something really occurred to me when I was sharing about, uh, focusing on health and focusing on what makes you feel your best. And, um, the series is like, never diet again, because from my perspective, that means the same thing that we talk about all the time is paleo from a sustainable lifestyle perspective and finding what works for you. And there might be some things more restrictive than paleo, like AIP, or you might be looser like me with dairy and rice, you with corn, right? Like it's about finding what works for you. What was interesting to me is when I was talking about it, um, I got so many comments from people who are talking about how they're health has improved from the perspective of their immune system and how much they don't get sick anymore or they get less sick or when they do get sick, it doesn't hit them as hard. And I think that's such an interesting metric of health, as you would call it, right? Like when we think Mm -hmm. about how our body is performing or how our body is feeling, that's often difficult to gauge, especially when you're comparing it to years ago when you might not remember exactly what things were like. So 
I just want to tell you that I know we talked about it a couple weeks ago and you made me knock on wood that I wasn't <laughs> going to get the flu after I went to a conference where there were people quarantined with the flu and then I got on a plane during flu season um, and then I got to work and everybody in my office was there with a fever with the flu <laughs> and I was like, I'm never going to survive this. I did not get the flu. Like, what Yay! does that say? I mean, I'm shocked, honestly. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Well, I I had um, – it was like right after we recorded that week that I think it was like the next morning I woke up and like my glands were swollen and my throat wasn't like super sore, but it didn't feel good either. And I just felt kind of felt tired and I ended up um, just like – okay, I'm going to uh, cancel my workout. I'm going to go back to bed. I'm going to sleep more. I made soup. I drank all the herbal tea. I didn't go to my evening fun hobby things that I love to do. But, you know, it's a late night when I go out. And I got a ton of sleep. And I, you know, in a few days, I was, like, back to normal. And I never really got sick. Like, I had four days where I just slept a lot. And... It had me sort of feeling like, you know, I had a lot of people say, oh, you're so lucky you didn't get sick. And I said, well, I also did the thing that as grownups, we don't often do, right? We tend to, yeah, I'm feeling sick and we sort of forge ahead no matter what. And I did that thing of I'm starting to feel sick. I'm going to pull back as much as I can. I didn't work as much. I um, was literally like trying to sleep 10, 11, 12 hours a night. Um, and I just, I took it easy for a few days and this flu season has been so bad. I know two people who have had, uh, pneumonia as complications of this flu. I know people who have been just knocked flat for, for three, four weeks. And I, I just, you know, that was so intimidating to me that I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do the things that I know will help me fight this off. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do those things. And then sure enough, you know, when my eight year old started to feel sick, I said, you know what? Flu's going around your school, stay home, stay home from school tomorrow. And I had her home for one day last week. She spent one day just hanging out in her bed, watching TV, um, you know, <laughs> doing this, you know, drink lots, sleep lots. And the next morning she woke up fine. And I feel like part of this is we really do legitimately have better immune systems now, since, you know, being paleo, I'm sick far less often. And I do sometimes still get really sick, but it's far less often than it used to be. Um, but part of it too is, is, you know, I live my life now with looking after myself as the main driver behind most of my day-to-day -day choices. And that just carries on to how do I look after myself when I've been exposed to a, a virus. It It's become something that is such a consistent theme throughout my life that it just informs, right? It informs a different set of choices in that situation, but it's still, it's a, it's a very different mentality than what I used to have. And what I used to have is like, just give me all the antibiotics and all the steroids and I'll just keep going until, you know, I'm in the hospital. And you know, un unfortunately, I've, I've done that more than once. And I, I, I feel like to bring it back to uh, the sort of uh, headspace aspect of it, I think so much of 
protecting ourselves during flu season is really that those diet and lifestyle choices that help to keep us healthy and that dialing things in as soon as we feel like things are maybe not right. Because I know that you did something very similar when you got off that plane. I did for sure. I focused on, on self-care. I focused on nutrient density and leading up to it. And after it, I had been souping, which we talked about. And I think that that definitely played a huge part in, um, my success with keeping my immune system strong. But Hey man, did you see my new blog post on souping that went live this morning? What? No, I know. I was so inspired. I wrote about it. With scientific references and everything. Just saying. I'm going to your Just website. Right out there. Yeah. It is called da, 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 The Benefits of Souping. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because I had actually done some research when writing Paleo Principles into how soups are quite different in terms of digestion than smoothies or other sort of liquid calories that we might have like green juices uh, or even um, like protein shakes. And, um, and so I felt like, oh, I, you know, I haven't written about this on the website. And I, I grabbed that research and added to it. And I felt like this is a really neat thing to talk about because it's not just about the nutrients in soup, which, you know, we've already talked about on the podcast and how it's a balanced meal with a great focus on nutrient density and the broth is so amazing. But actually what's really cool is that for some not particularly well understood reason, soup is much more efficiently digested in our digestive tract and it's much more filling. Like it's soup pre-digested. I've talked about this. Come so on soup, now. Soup though. So um, if you had a smoothie – a smoothie is less satiating than if you ate all of the ingredients separately. And for soup, it's the opposite. So if you took all of the ingredients for a smoothie, protein, carbs, fat, liquid, and you ate them separately, they would fill you up more than if you had the ingredients all blended together. And with soup, it that, that's that's not how it, how it works. With soup, you're actually more full eating the soup than if you ate all of the ingredients separately. And your digestion is better eating the soup compared to the ingredients separately. And with a smoothie, it's the opposite. And like scientists can't explain why that happens. So like a smoothie will have you hungry sooner because it's not as filling for the same number of calories. But a soup will keep you fuller longer, which is cool. Well, we talked about it. I started the trend. You did. I credit Stacey Toth for souping. All right. Well, sometimes souping isn't enough when it comes to navigating illnesses. And we've talked about this before. You are a scientist, first and foremost, always have been. We are very science-minded family and have never shied away from the fact that sometimes medicine is needed and sometimes, you know, support and all that kind of stuff. So if you did have the flu this year, and like Sarah said, I know plenty of people who did and who, you know, children were hospitalized for IVs and all kinds of stuff like that. I 100% hope that you do not think that we're saying soup and, you know, zinc and vitamin C are going to help with that. Of course, not get medical attention. But what we, you know, 
what I at least am trying to say is that the more you support your immune system, the better off you'll be if and when you are exposed to things. And sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes people get sick no matter how healthy or well they are. So um, that said, we have had a lot of questions about the flu this year because Mm. of... Um, I think in particular how very um, difficult this strand is or how drastic um, it's hitting people. So I thought maybe we could jump into a question and you could drop some science knowledge bombs. What do you think? Um, Well, we have this amazing question about Kelly, and I, I feel like this is a really good place to center this conversation around because... Kelly's question is not just about the flu, but about flu vaccines. And I feel like when you talk about the flu nowadays, it's almost impossible to not um, merge those two highly related topics together because there's so much uh, drive and push for everyone to get vaccinated. And so let me read Kelly's question and then I will jump into lots of cool uh, science information and statistics. Kelly says, I work in skilled nursing as an occupational therapist. My company requires taking the flu vaccine or wearing a mask from November to February. I understand the company's position looking at lost work time and revenue due to sick days. My direct supervisor says her reason for wanting all employees to take the vaccine is that if we don't, we are at an increased risk of passing the flu to our residents, even if we don't have the flu ourselves. She quotes a 30% increase. I have looked and cannot find studies to support this. I actually found from the Cochrane Review and PubMed that no relation is found. I have opted not to vaccinate this year. I'm the only employee in my department to not vaccinate this season. I am wearing a mask daily and actually feel like it will decrease my risk of catching a cold. I was just wondering if there was any evidence that not taking the vaccine increases the risk for my residents. Last year, I did take the vaccine in October and in January in a two-week period was diagnosed with strep throat, sinus infection, bilateral eye and bilateral ear infections was not tested for flu due to having had the vaccine. Well, so here's disclaimer. I understand that we're going to, we're using the V word and it can be a hot topic for a lot of people. And uh, Sarah and I have not been shy about hot topics But, of course, um, everything that Sarah's going to share with us is going to be science-based, and we'll put references up in show notes um, so that you can make sure to to research um, both, you know, what Kelly may have found and what Sarah found. I will say that our house is divided. There are some people in our house who are vaccinated for the flu every year, and then... um, there's one person in particular who does not find that immune agitating vaccines that are not guaranteed to actually help prevent it is worthwhile. That's my personal approach. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about how you can decide um, based on your situation what might be best for you, but we are not medical professionals. So do not take our uh, information as such. But you can, of course, use it as a basis for your own research, as we always advocate for. Yeah, I think you had a very good point, which is um, that the flu vaccine is quite different from other vaccines. And I kind of want to separate it out from 
other vaccines. I'm going to share a lot of statistics that are really specific to the flu vaccine. Um, I have talked about being pro-vaccine before on my social media. I've been on two uh, panels, both of the last two years at Paleo Effects, talking about vaccines and doing a lot of myth-busting around vaccines. So, you know, the science really unequivocally shows that vaccines are safe. The uh, herd immunity aspect is is really, really important where the majority of the population is protected and that protects the uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's considered sort of like the weak members, but that's right, the immunocompromised members of society. So kids with cancer, for example, if the people around them are vaccinated for polio, that kid with cancer is not going to be able to get it. And the vaccines I really see in general as being one of the great successes of modern medicine, we have eradicated diseases with vaccines. Um, and the, the science in terms of all of the different concerns um, that you'll read um, in sort of the sort of anti-vaccine articles, uh, the science does not support them. The science really supports that they are safe and effective. The flu vaccine stands out from other vaccines for a couple of reasons. Um, when you're talking about cost-benefit analysis, right, with all vaccines, there is a very, very small risk of uh, allergic reactions or adverse reactions. The, the likelihood is incredibly small. Um, and it's not necessarily predictable, you know, if you're going to have an allergy to, to one of these things. There's certain, certain, you know, if you have an egg allergy, there's certain vaccines you can't get. But there's also the possibility of just having an allergic reaction. But aside from those reactions, um, you know, they are c completely safe. Um, you know, side effects are the things like sore arm. And when you're talking about something like polio, um, you're talking about, or, um, I mean, even, uh, you know, measles has like a 50% morbidity rate. Polio had an incredibly high mortality rate. Um, tetanus has a very, very uh, high mortality rate, and it is a fast and, and painful, gruesome death. And when you're talking about these, um, these types of diseases that, uh, were literally killing tens of thousands of people every single year that we don't need to think about anymore. It's a it's a very very different equation compared to the flu vaccine which is um provides very very short term immunity and a very limited immunity and I want to get into some statistics here. So if um you know overall I kind of want to point people to other places where I've had the ability to present all of these statistics and talk about this in more detail. Um, it, you know, my opinion of vaccines comes very, very strongly from, from reading the scientific literature extensively. Um, the, the flu vaccine kind of stands apart from those other vaccines in, in large part because it is not as effective, but also because the, the flu, while it uh, definitely um, affects a, a huge number of people every year. It's it's a very different virus in the sense that it uh, mutates very rapidly. So the flus that we're getting exposed to every single year are different from previous years. Uh, it's very virulent. Uh, so that means it affects, I mean, it, there is 
typically about 3 million cases per year of the flu uh, in America. And of course, this year they're saying it's you know, especially bad, but there's no statistics yet for the 2017-2018 flu season. Um, the flu causes uh, – the number of deaths it causes every year sort of varies pretty dramatically based on the flu strains that end up being dominant. So, for example, in the 2011 to 2012 flu season, there was approximately 12,000 deaths attributed to influenza in America. Um, in the 2012 to 2013 season, there was 56,000 deaths. So just that difference from season to season. Um, it is a condition that um, you know a lot of people think of the flu and they think of stomach bugs. Um, most flus don't actually have stomach symptoms. They're much more um, much more characterized by fever and aches and pains, and then typically symptoms that we would associate with like a, a cold almost. So, other than the fever and the aches and pains, you might get a runny nose, you might have a cough, uh, sore throat. Very, very, very common. Um, and just general fatigue. Um, there can be stomach symptoms, but that is is much less common. And one of the things that happens with the flu is it pretty dramatically increases risk of secondary infections. So that's what actually people die of when they die of the flu. They're not actually typically dying of influenza. They're typically dying from viral pneumonia. So it's it's typically a secondary infection on top of the influenza. Um, flu is spread through respiratory secretions. So that's why Kelly was asked to wear a mask. Um, so it is spread by um, basically, you know, microscopic droplets of, uh, you know, saliva um, coming from your, you know, coughing or sneezing or even just breathing and somebody touches it, they touch their mouth and that's how it's spread. So flu vaccines, um, they typically, because the flu mutates so rapidly, how flu vaccines work is um, they basically labs make a guess on how the flu is going to mutate for the upcoming season. And this is based on a very large amount of understanding and computer computer modeling, you know, they're generally fairly good educated guesses. And then vaccines typically um, contain inactivated or dead virus for between two and four strains. Three is sort of most common. And so part of the limitation with flu vaccines is this aspect that it's a guess. But the other part about it, there's something about flu vaccines that the um, – immunity that we develop against the flu is very, very transient. So, for example, in uh, some studies that were done after the H1N1 outbreak in 2009 showed that uh, six months after the, that vaccine, only about a third of the people who were vaccinated had antibodies against H1N1 remaining from that vaccine. And um, People who actually just got H1N1 had confirmed cases over half. So it's about double as many or not quite double as many still had antibodies after getting um, the H1N1 flu compared to being vaccinated against the H1N1 flu. And general sort of guesstimates, it obviously varies a lot from individual to individual, but estimates are that when you get the flu shot every year, that it lasts about six months. So that's enough that if you get it in the fall, it can last throughout the, the flu season. 
if you get in October, it'll be wearing off in March when flu uh, incidence rates are starting to decrease. But that is why the flu vaccine is recommended every single year. It's that sort of combination thing of you're not immune still from last year's flu shot because your immunity has worn off. You're not, your body's not producing antibodies anymore. And it also mutates so quickly that the flu viruses that you were vaccinated against last year, they're sort of like it's redundant now because those that's so passe. That's last year's flu virus. This year's flu virus is the one that we need to worry about. So overall, uh, flu vaccines, when they guess well, when there's a, a high degree of match between the strains that are uh, vaccinated against in the, in the flu vaccine and the ones that are actually dominating uh, in the flu epidemics every single year, at best, they're about 50 to 60% effective, uh, which means that it decreases your chance of getting the flu by something like 50 to 60%. Um, but a recent study that looked at how effective vaccines were between 2010 and 2015 showed that on average, they were only 41% effective. And when they were a bad guess, they were 14% effective, um, which is a pretty, pretty small number. And the Cochrane review that, that Kelly referenced and this is actually a 2010 uh, meta-analysis of uh, 50 different studies. So they pooled the data from all of these studies. And what they showed was that the absolute difference in um, in how in, – in the actual incidence of the flu was at best in a year where um, the, the rates were high but the vaccine was a really, really good match – that at best it was about a 3% difference. So at best um, risk of getting the flu in unvaccinated people was about 4% and in vaccinated was about 1%. Uh, and a recent paper from just 2017 actually updated uh, those statistics and showed that on average our risk of getting the flu is 2.3% uh, if we're unvaccinated and 0.9% if we are vaccinated. And obviously that's worse if, if there's not a match. Um, a lot of the rationale for getting the flu shot has it. There's there's this sort of many different things. So there's rationale getting it so that you you won't get sick. And I mean, 2.3 percent down to 0.9 percent doesn't sound like a lot, but we are talking about approximately two people out of every 100 who would have gotten the flu otherwise, who wouldn't won't get it if they get vaccinated. And that's. Um, you know, that that is a, a significant number, uh, especially when you think of the average number of sick days that a person needs when they get the flu is like two full weeks. Risk of hospitalization in this the same analysis showed that uh, of people who had the flu, they had about a 14.7 percent chance of being hospitalized if they were unvaccinated. And that reduced to 14.1 percent if they were vaccinated and actually, what was really interesting is they showed that the benefit was much higher in the elderly. So, um, the, one of the you know things with the the flu vaccine, especially sort of the um, older, was you know ideally everyone would get it, but definitely you want at risk populations to get it. And there's been a lot of studies studying uh, the effectiveness of flu vaccine in the elderly because they don't have typically as robust immune systems. So there's some question as to whether or not they are developing immunity against the flu. 
Um, but studies show that it's reducing their chances of getting the flu from 6% in unvaccinated elderly people. And I think that's just very vaguely defined as people over 65 down to 2.4% in people who are unvaccinated. So there is a bigger effect in um, that particular population. So I, you know, this is a disease that uh, affects a lot of people every single year. Um, there are deaths every year. Um, and there are years where the death toll can get quite high when it's a particularly um, problematic virus, uh, especially when it's a especially virulent virus and especially when those people who are getting vaccinated um, don't have uh, when that vaccine isn't a very good match. So I kind of just wanted to share these statistics because it, it is a very different ballpark from other vaccines. And these statistics mean different things to different people. For some people, they hear this vaccine, this, these statistics, and they, they want to take the vaccine to save that 2% chance. And other people hear this and they don't want to bother. Um, you know, the interesting studies showing that we may have more robust immunity if we get the flu uh, compared to if we get the vaccine and that uh, antibodies that our bodies produce will last potentially much, much longer um, you know, they they can still measure antibodies in elderly people now who are exposed to the Spanish flu nearly 100 or exactly 100 years ago. Um, so it's um, it's sort of important to realize that the because the flu virus mutates so quickly, uh, no matter how you develop immunity against it, whether you get, get the flu and and fight it off or whether you get vaccinated, it's incomplete immunity. So it's always going to have some, um, what's called cross protection, right? If this was an antibody we're producing against gluten, we'd call it cross reactivity. Uh, when it's a beneficial antibody that helps protect us against a different virus, we call it cross protection. We can have cross protection in both situations. So we can have some cross protection from flu virus. We can have cross protection from uh, getting the flu. And so it becomes a, I think, a really individual choice in terms of, um, you know, are you an at-risk individual um, or do you have at-risk individuals in your life and protecting yourself from them is important? Um, is the, the chance that you would miss two weeks of work and be super sick going to be a real problem in your life? Um or is it going to be okay if you're really, really sick for two weeks? I think it's really important to emphasize because it was part of Kelly's question. Um, you know, Kelly, you mentioned that last year when she got the vaccine, she had this two-week period where she had a lot of different infections. There have actually been a couple of really robust studies that have um, done comparison between people who uh, they get – it was, you know, blinded, double blinded. One group got a flu vaccine and the other group got a saline injection and they followed them for the season. And there was absolutely no difference in side effects other than the flu vaccine people had a little bit more muscle soreness and a little bit more likelihood of those um, vaccine reactions like mild fever over the first couple of days. But there's absolutely no difference in infections other than the protection against the flu, but like other infections that were not flu related, 
or other symptoms. So sometimes we have this perception that, you know, if we get sick really close after a flu vaccine, we have this perception that the flu vaccine made us sick. That's not what's happening. It's, um, you know, when that happens, it's uh, unfortunate timing of being exposed to something probably in the days before getting the vaccine. So a lot of the viruses that we're exposed to over the fall can have incubation periods of anywhere between a few days and a few weeks. And when it's a couple of weeks, that means that uh, you, the person who gave it to you, you saw two weeks ago, you felt fine for two weeks. You were actually probably contagious for at least half of that before you start feeling sick. And that was one of the things that I'm going to get a little bit into the debate about um, mandatory vaccines for healthcare practitioners um, because that's part of Kelly's question and it's it, that becomes a different equation. Um, and part of that equation is the part where you are typically considered most contagious just before you're symptomatic. So that's one of the reasons why something like the flu can spread so quickly is because we're out doing all of these things in our normal life um, without knowing that we're sharing a virus with other people. And it isn't until we get sick um, that we, and it, often it's even the first once symptoms start, we're still, you know, doing all of our normal things. And it's not until we feel really crummy that we start to pull back. And that's one of the reasons why um, the flu can spread so easily. There's a lot of debate uh, over mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers. And, you know, Kelly did quote the Cochrane Review from 2010, uh, which did, um, in their analysis, show uh, it wasn't that there was no effect. So they were specifically trying to look at whether or not healthcare workers um, getting vaccinated protected patients from getting the flu, but rather that there was a lack of evidence to make that claim. And that was a paperback from 2010. Uh, more recent uh, evidence um, probably refutes that somewhat. So there was a um, study that was done actually very shortly after that paper that was published that um, actually showed they were looking specifically at uh, – flu season mortality in residents of chronic care institutions. So these are like long-term care hospitals. And they actually showed um, between a uh, sort of 10 to 20% reduction in mortality where staff vaccination rates were higher compared to where they were lower. So there was a really big difference between a facility where um, 60 to 70% of the staff were vaccinated compared to a facility where only 20% of the staff were vaccinated. And that showed up in the mortality rate of those patients. And that that's really important information because it's very, very difficult to um, get these kind of statistics in a lot of different care settings. Um, and this is, you know, when you're looking at chronic care institutions, you're looking at exactly that combination of you know, healthy caregivers and a at-risk population um, as the, the residents of these institutions. And so you have a very sensitive statistical model that arises out of those studies. So there is some compelling evidence that healthcare workers uh, getting vaccinated 
can protect um, residents of of or patients in a hospital setting, and it may be much more surrounding herd immunity than necessarily uh, a one to one type of um, correlation. So it may just be that when you have a majority of um, the workers in an institution being vaccinated, that if someone comes in with the flu, there's just not as many healthy hosts who can get it and pass it and be, um, be, you know, like uh, carriers. So it just can't, the, the flu just can't spread as quickly in those types of facilities where there's um, more people who have this 50 or 60% reduction in um, risk of getting the flu, right? They're, they're protected at that level. So there is some really interesting science to support uh, higher vaccination rates in these types of facilities. But another thing that Kelly mentioned that I really wanted to kind of end this uh, large collection of statistics on was that she has opted instead of getting a vaccine to wear a mask. And what's really interesting is that there are some sort of best practices articles through um, some some research articles, also best practices through uh, things like CDC in terms of controlling uh, flu infection in hospital type environments. And the recommendations are have as many, you know, have a high number of the, the staff vaccinated as recommendation number one. And recommendation number two is uh, have people wear masks and uh, have, right, antibacterial uh, soaps or those foams at every single entrance. So everyone's doing this hand washing or hand sanitization all the time, right? So there's this whole other layer of how to uh, prevent the spread of the flu beyond vaccinations. And that is all of the practices that are, are typical in hospitals during outbreaks of anything, which is, um, you know, sanitization, gloves, masks, um, you know, and sometimes more than that, depending on uh, exactly what's going on. I, um, I was doing research in a hospital during uh, the H1N1 uh, oh, sorry, not during H1N1. I was doing uh, work in a hospital during SARS. And we had to wear all kinds of crazy protective gear just to be at work um, because of, of how virulent that particular virus was. So it's it's this second layer of protection. And it may actually, you know, as Kelly sort of says, I think this is going to help prevent me from getting a cold. That is absolutely true. So wearing those masks, you know, there's actually a lot of different viruses that are spread through respiratory secretions. Um, and wearing a mask all, uh, all day at work is um, actually a really, really good way to protect yourself from uh, infection as well as protect the people around you from anything that you might have picked up from somewhere else. So I really wanted to kind of end this with a uh, there's arguments to be made for the flu vaccine and there's arguments to be made um, uh, I I think the the arguments there's not necessarily arguments to be made against it, right? There's there the that's safe, uh, the risks are fairly low, um, 
you know, I, I do know that people with autoimmune disease don't like to get vaccines because the adjuvants in vaccines can cause an increase in symptoms. It's typically transient, but every once in a while, uh, it'll cause a full flare. And that's a really, really awful thing to go through. And that definitely changes the equation. Um, but I, I did kind of want to emphasize that the flu vaccine is a little bit different than other vaccines in terms of its effectiveness, how transient immunity is. And really, you know, whenever you read one of these papers that looks at statistics on flu vaccine, the, the number one conclusion is we need a better way to vaccinate against the flu. Like this is clearly, you know, there's there's clearly limitations here. And so I really wanted to sort of end on there's a lot of information and I really just want to empower people to make the best choices for themselves. Um, but that, you know, in terms of Kelly's specific question about whether or not her getting a flu vaccine can protect residents of the facility that she works in, um, the science actually does say yes. Awesome. Well, I just, I want to highlight because I have basically nothing more to add. I'm just going to completely go off on my own tangent. Um, what what has been interesting to me is not just the flu vaccine, but getting the flu can also be an uh, autoimmune trigger. Anything that's happening to your immune system can affect uh, autoimmune. So just it's one of the things that I learned, Sarah, from reading your blog and eventually your books later when they were published that – NSAIDs or something that I never would have realized was affecting my autoimmune disorder. So, you know, choosing to take Tylenol-based products instead of ibuprofen-based products if I'm not feeling well, um, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then also being really aware of different factors that contribute to my health. And in my particular instance, um, the likelihood of my exposure given, you know, I mean, yes, of course I have children, uh, but I don't work in a medical setting and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do have the ability to take off of work and rest and relax and um, that kind of stuff. If I were to get sick, I'm, I'm not in a high um, likelihood. I'm not at a high risk factor when it comes to age and, and that kind of stuff. So for right. me, I had to make the choice that you know, worked for me in terms of the decision that I made. And like I said, there are people in my home that have made different decisions because their um, response to getting a flu vaccine is would be different than mine. Um, and there is nothing definitive. Like you'll hear people say, um, well, I got a flu vaccine and that's the only year that I did get the flu. And I feel like, you know, you address that um, a bit with uh, talking about other things being coincidental and not necessarily scientifically linked um, from, uh, you know, other uh, sinus infections and things that Kelly mentioned. Um, but I think, too, it's it's just important for you to know your body and what you're comfortable with because ultimately it is you and it is your body. And if you get the flu or if you don't get the flu, you're the one who's dealing with it. Um, and of course, you could have an impact on others if you're sharing those germs. So just I find being mindful. And one of the other things that I'm going to mention, and I am getting 
zero kickback for this at all, which, uh, you know, I'm kicking myself for, but I feel really strongly that the doTERRA on guard blend helped me this year. In addition to a lot of the, um, healthy lifestyle stuff that we've talked about. So we previously talked, we did have an essential oils podcast and Sarah, um, mentioned, and we linked to an NIH article that showed that the on guard blend actually had the ability to kill, um, the, the flu. And it's the reason that I purchased it. Like it's, that is the only reason that I purchased it. Mm -hmm. And I traveled with the hand sanitizer. They have foaming hand wash and I diffused the blend at home, um, as well as in my office and blending, uh, diffusing the blend in my office. I, I genuinely feel like is one of the reasons that I was one of the very few people who did not get it at my office. So, um, there are some things that you can do to supplement. Um, it's not a guarantee obviously, but for me, those are the choices that I've made is to look into the research, look into the science. What can I do to support my immune system? What can I do to potentially, um, reduce my chances that don't negatively affect my immune system? And we'll go from there. And I might, you know, make a different decision a couple years from now, but I feel like we all need to, own that this is our own choice in our own bodies and um, just be okay with that without, you know, needing to get all riled up. Because if we got riled up in this house about it, then Matthew and I would be living in different homes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I hope that this podcast provided a lot of information to go on to help inform the specific choices related to the flu vaccine. Um, I did kind of want to emphasize as we talk about um, uh, sort of the uh, making our own choices that, that you know, and maybe we need to, to dedicate a, a podcast to this in the future. Um, but I do want to point people to the, the, the paleo effects panels that I was on the last two years, that the equation is definitely different when you're talking about um, the, you know, other groups of vaccines, polio, um, rubella, <laughs> mumps, measles, uh, tetanus, diphtheria. Um, that is definitely a, a different type of mathematics um, because the mortality rate is so much higher and because the effectiveness of those vaccines is so much higher, um, suddenly it becomes uh, sort of a no-brainer um, to get those vaccines and contribute to herd immunity so that, you know, really we should be able to put more than just smallpox uh, into extinction. So, um, so you know, like smallpox was eradicated and and um, these other conditions like, like polio could be if, if vaccination rates were higher. And I think that, that, that is a very different conversation than the flu vaccine conversation. Um, because the flu vaccine statistics are, are, uh, not as strong. It becomes a little bit more of a sort of pros and cons, Argument, And that's why there are so many articles, you know, I was finding actually articles in scientific journals that was, you know, the case for healthcare workers, you know, having mandatory vaccination programs. And there'd be one researcher who wrote, or doctor who wrote a, 
uh, pro argument and one researcher or doctor who wrote a con argument, and they're they're both compelling. You, you can um, see, you know, you can find yourself agreeing with both cases, and that that's one of the reasons why this conversation is uh, a much tougher conversation to have, even uh, internationally, and um, and it it will become a different conversation if the flu vaccine is improved over what it is now. All right. Well, stay well, everybody. And we will, of course, be back again next week. If you enjoy the show, um, if you have follow-up questions, if you love Sarah's knowledge bombs, please, you know, reach out to us in social media and put reviews up in iTunes and Stitcher. And we welcome you to input your own questions through the contact form on um, our blog. I think, actually, Sarah, I saw you guys sending sending people to ours um but regardless where wherever you submit a question social media email contact form we will get it and we will put it in the queue and flattery works to get it floated to the top <laughs> always flattery is <laughs> our favorite it's not a, you know it's not a guarantee and we do do questions from time to time without the flattery but uh yeah flattery will get you everywhere here that's true All right, we'll be back again next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.